0: just a reminder, and I'm, I'm actually excited about this, that we're going to celebrate Christmas here on Thursday night, the 22nd. And hearing from, from some of the people that have responded to our weekly newsletter, uh, I'm excited. I think we're going to have some some guests and visitors and friends of the church that aren't always able to make it. And by having it that night, we can get the old glow sticks out. I probably still have some in here from years ago, because Sunday morning, you know, it's it's hard to to do the candlelight service, but we'll do do glow sticks, out of respect for the new carpet, we'll do glow sticks, and we will do um, Silent Night, and we will have a Christmas service in this room, Um, and it's going to be awesome, I love it, I love it. This is the first Sunday of Advent, a season of preparation for the celebration at Christmas of the birth of Jesus Christ. And this year, I'll be approaching each of the four-week themes of hope, love, joy, and peace from the light of John 14, 27, which includes Jesus' words. It says, I do not give to you as the world gives. I hope you will commit to joining us for each of these messages, which will culminate in a special worship service on that Thursday evening, December 22nd, as we conclude this series with a message, As Only God Can Give. The first Sunday of Advent celebrates hope. It's hard to imagine a world without hope, and I'm certain that we would not want to think about it. But that is the state, or that was the state of the world before Jesus. I'm not saying that there was nothing good about the world, that there wasn't, weren't things worth hoping for, or that God himself wasn't the source of hope in the world because he absolutely was. There were good things and good people, and that is how God created everything, and that is still his desire for it and us, to be good from the very beginning, humanity has put its hope in God and he has met our hopes and measured to our faith and according to his will and his plan. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I love what this reveals about God's character, a mighty warrior, Right? a mighty warrior that saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but rejoice over you. The great power of the universe, the one that breath, breathed life into absolutely everything, who has all power and all control is a mighty warrior that saves us. And he takes delight in the simple things like our love, for him and for each other. This message is echoed in the writing of the book of Lamentations 3:21 through 23. It says, yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. So it's giving this reason for the hope. It says, because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, God. And the psalmist 39.7, And now, O Lord, what do, you, why, what do I wait? My hope is in you. Verse 8 continues with the plea, Save me from all my transgression. I consider this a hint at one of the deep-seated afflictions that we seek hope against. The Psalms are loaded with a balance of request and praise for hope in the Lord less like these. Psalm 71.14, But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. In Psalm 119, 114, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word, some translations say, I put my hope in your promise. That is something that our hope is well placed in. God's true, strong, unchanging promises. And true to his nature, God responds. You know the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11, you know it. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you hope and a future. This promise, again, hints at something greater than our present hope. It includes a future and a future hope. This is the true hope of Christmas, as we will be discovering over the remainder of the message time. Again, it's a psalmist who writes in one forty seven eleven. the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. He delights in those who accept his plan for our future. Proverbs twenty three eighteen, for surely a future hope for you and your hope will not be cut off. The world would come to know this hope as a permanent hope, a living hope, established by the ministry of Jesus Christ, a life and work that we recognize as beginning at Christmas, but never ending. Let's take a moment to step back in the First Testament and look at the plight that afflicted God's people against which they needed a future hope. Sin, disobedience, denial. Aren't you glad we've mastered these all these years and decades and generations later? Yeah. From the beginning, God has wanted to restore our relationship as we continually create this strain and brokenness between us and him. But fortunately, God has a plan and his plan for this restoration, it's not easy, but it's very simple. Second Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name, okay, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. sounds like a lot, but just think about what that is. If they'll humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their ways, then here's the promise. I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. If we just do this, then that's the promise, that's the hope. Isaiah 55, 7, the prophet who, who explained through wisdom God's plan and, and his reasoning. It says, let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteousness of their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Now, First Testament law laid out specific ways to reconcile our relationship with God. I'm not going to get too much in the details, but in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, we will find detailed instructions for offering sacrifices. Five regular offering practices that address the seriousness of sin, as well as the possibility and provision of a substitute. Why should we study these details of the various sacrifices in Leviticus, since we are no longer required to offer these kinds of sacrifices? Well, we should do so because they help us to understand how the work of Christ saves like, people like us from sin and restores our relationship with God. Each of the sacrifices point to a different aspect of Christ's sacrifice of himself. If you were to read Leviticus 1, it talks about the burn offering. Leviticus 2 talks about a grain offering. Again, I won't get too far in the details, but but to make an atonement for his sin and to gain God's acceptance, the one making the offer identified himself with the animal. He he would lay his hand on the animal's head, and when the animal died, it died for the offerer's sin. Neither the offerer nor the priest ate any of this meat, right? It was now impure, unclean, it had your sin on it. It was completely consumed by the fire at the altar. This was sacrifice in its purest form. I give it to you and I destroy it. A valuable animal was given up completely to God. Along with the burnt offering, which offered twice a day, right? That's how often we need God's forgiveness at least, right? Twice a day was the offering of fine flour, oil, frankincense, and salt, which expressed gratitude for God and served as a way to asking God, the Lord, to remember the one making the offer with favor. Remember me, Lord. Remember my my sacrifice, the commitment I've made. Leviticus 2 refers to this as the flour or grain offering. The third is the fellowship offering. This is the one we probably enjoy of these the most. The fellowship or peace offering was more than a sacrifice. It was a a festive meal. A bull, a sheep, or a goat was shared by the Lord, the priest, and the one who offered it. In fact, the worshiper was allowed to bring family and friends along to spend a couple days enjoying the meat and the presence of God at the tabernacle. This wasn't just any piece of livestock. It was the best. It was pure, perfect, flawless. It was, it was the best of the livestock because, again, it was going to be a substitute. The act of the offering reminded the worshiper that the only way he had been able to come back in the fullness and joy of fellowship and communion with God was through the blood of a perfect substitution sacrifice. So, you know, sin pollutes and it corrupts us, right? It feels gross. It should. The sin offering was offered to cleanse away this filth of sin, to restore us, to refresh us. With this type of sacrifice, there was a, a special instruction ceremony with the blood that is ascribed in Leviticus 4. If you're curious, read it. It's very detailed about the process that one must go through to participate in this kind of, of sacrifice. This is also referred to as a sin or peace offering. And Leviticus 5 describes the guilt offering, where something is required beyond the mere sacrifice. This is better described as, as restitution. The guilty person had to confess his sin publicly, offer the blood sacrifice, and make full repayment of or, or for what was defrauded, plus an additional 20%. We, we read a little bit about this before when we talk about Zacchaeus, right? And, and others having to give back and giving back more because, because require, the law requires restitution and some. By offering these sacrifices and faith, the people of the First Testament demonstrated their hope in God's promises, which were the promises of forgiveness, guidance, provision and protection, right? If, then, but if a God is always the same, and we know these verses, Malachi 3, 6, says, I do not change. James 1, 17, no variation or shadow due to change. And even Numbers 23, 19, God does not lie, does not change his mind. If we know that God is the same, then do these law requirements remain? Must there be a sacrifice? Is it safe to assume that we have not overcome our tendency to sin, deny, disobey? I won't ask for hands, but I'd be raising mine, right? So why aren't we burning offerings and making sacrifices on our altar daily, twice a day or, or more often? How do we reconcile now with the substitute offering? The sacrificial provision of Leviticus Leviticus teaches that God can be approached with the blood of a worthy substitute. Worthy meaning the best, pure, perfect, and flawless. Do you remember how I concluded last week's message with a statement that God often uses the doubts and questions of followers and skeptics alike? They make powerful testimonies. Well, Paul, who would become the apostle Paul, was one such person. He was well-studied in the First Testament laws, and then he was transformed from enforcer of the law and persecuted Christians to one of the most prolific among them, writing many of the epistles we include in the New Testament and, and read on Sundays in our Bible study and personal devotion time. That's the man. In his correspondence to the early Christians gathering in, in Jerusalem, Paul wrote the letter of Hebrews, which describes well the perfect substitute sacrifice that Jesus served for us all. To that point, he highlights several ways of how Christ's sacrifice exceeds the requirements of the Old Covenant's law. First, Christ's sacrifice was offered only once and for all. The word from the cross was to tetelestai, right? It is continually and ongoing, finished and complete. Repeatedly, ongoing, it's an action word. His sacrifice was offered once and for all. Hebrews 9.12 says, He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. And if you jump ahead to Hebrews 9.25-26, it says, Nor did he even enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, right? And that's just based on one person, because we all do this and require this over and over. It says, But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Second, Christ's sacrifice elicits forgiveness by offering himself, right? A perfect, flawless, blameless sacrifice. Our Savior became a sacrifice of ultimate value, perfectly removing sin. Hebrews 10 18 says, And where there has been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Where there has been forgiveness, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Okay, once and for all, sacrifice once and for all. And here's the cool part. Third, Christ's sacrifice was accepted in heaven, right? We can't determine the value of what we're giving up or selling or yielding. The one who is receiving it has to accept it and give it its value. Christ's sacrifice was accepted in heaven. It was not symbolic like the, the goats or the lambs or the bulls. It was literal and real and was accepted by God himself. Therefore, the substitution was permitted and forgiveness is assured. Hebrews 9, 23 through 24. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to it appear for us in God's presence. Finally, or last on my list anyway, Christ's sacrifice gained our access to God. By the law, only the high priest had access into the Holy of Holies, and just once a year, and by a prescribed ceremony of sacrifice. It was a fearful thing to approach the holy God. We, we read about it. Even Moses, right? When he talked to God, you know, they're, they're trembling. It was a fearful thing. But by the sacrifice of Christ, the way is now open to everyone. All who come by him on the ground of his sacrificial work are accepted. And that is why all are accepted and welcome here at this church. And church is just like it. Because this is the ministry of Jesus Christ. All have access. I'll pray with you. I'll pray for you, as will the people around you. But you can go straight to God yourself now. As a framing of resolution, the Apostle Paul ends this dissertation this way. says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. This season, Advent Christmas, it truly is a season without boundaries, right? There's no... There's no season. I mean, they'll, we'll put away the wreaths and we'll, the stores will have their clearance sale. But the season that is Christmas and all that it represents is not a season at all. The power of Christmas is the fulfilled in the events of Easter, and the gift is both, of both is eternal. The gift of Christmas and the gift of Easter is, is, is eternal. It doesn't end in April, it does not end in January. Remember this, John 3, 16, 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him, the perfect sacrifice. God put Jesus here on earth so that we could put him here on the cross so that we could all be together beyond what we know is here and now. This is a true hope. An eternal future in the presence of a very good and loving God. That is the hope of Christmas. That is the hope of this life. Would you join me in prayer, please? Heavenly Father, we know that we have a hope in you. We we come to you with our prayers, we come to you with our with our repentance, and we have a hope that that is really a confidence assurance and the promises you have made. When we do this, then you will. Lord, Take us, help us to take that if out of the equation. When we do this, then you will. This is the hope of the season. It's not a hope of what happens next or how the day will go, but a hope of things more important, of things more eternal. Lord, as we continue this Advent season, as we look at hope, faith, love, joy, and peace, all from what you breathe, give and what you provide and how you provide it. Not how we understand it or how the world provides, but how you intend us to experience these things, hope, love, joy, and peace. May we come every week with an open heart and open mind and may we leave filled and changed for what we've heard and experienced. Lord, there are people in this world, there are people in this community who, who have no idea what we're talking about. Lord, help us to to share this message in a true, pure, and relevant way so that they understand the hope of the season, that there is a hope and a purpose in this world and a hope and purpose that extends well beyond it. Lord, would you challenge us to be a part of that ministry with you? Say in your son's name, whose life we celebrate. Amen.